Pray with me. Gracious Father, we come before you to hear from your living word uh, that transforms us. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to take all the distractions uh, that are plaguing us right now and to put them away, Lord, so that we may hear from you. It is in your Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Happy winter. Should be over in about 24 hours. <laughs> this is a bit uh, what you might think of as a two-part uh, sermon series. Where I come from in the more evangelical world, there's all kinds of sermon series. They're a little bit trickier to do and you have to follow a lectionary where the texts are uh, selected for you. But it just so happens that this week's, uh, next week's work out because it's one big passage from Matthew. And the first part of it we heard um, today and the next part of it we will hear next week. And... Um, If I had a sermon title for it, um, it would be called uh, The Good Life, (laughs) The Good Life as Defined by Jesus. Everybody in our world is looking for the good life, is looking for happiness. Um, Everywhere you look, there are people trying to find happiness, whether that's in um, job positions, power, um, wealth, material goods, romantic partners. People are trying to find happiness. It's an ongoing search for all of us. And I don't know about you, but if I wake up on any given day and I feel particularly unhappy, I try to do stuff that makes me feel happy. And it's usually stuff that I go after. I did a Google search. I went on the Internet and I did a Google search and I typed in how to be happy because I was curious um, what Google had to tell me. And if you do that, you will get no less than 239 million website results dealing with the topic of how to be happy. And the uh, titles are things like seven things to make you a happier person or ten things you can do to be incredibly happy or eight scientifically proven ways to become a happier person. Uh, ten different TED Talks that will help you become happier in this life. And the list went on and on and on and on. And I looked through some of these websites because I was curious um, about how to find happiness according to uh, Google, according to the world. And there are two really major uh, ways that I see the world um, trying to find happiness. And this is the God doesn't really fit in the picture for the most part. And the websites that I was looking to... um, so it was a bit of a, it's mostly a secular approach you'll find to happiness, which is fine. Um, but the two major things that I noticed were, one, um, an increase of personal pleasure and comfort. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's how they're telling you to find happiness, an increase in personal pleasure or comfort. And the other way, which is maybe a little bit more commendable, is actually um, to become a more kind person, to be more forgiving, to be more merciful to other people, to um, be kind to people you disagree with. Um, Certainly, maybe more commendable um, than the first. But I think there's um, a shortcoming in both. I think there's a shortcoming in both of them when God is out of the picture. And the first, the pursuit of an increase of personal pleasure and comfort is this. No matter what you gain as far as possessions or who you, whose social circle you get yourself into or what kind of job position you climb to, you will not find eternal happiness. What you will find is that you need more and more and more of that stuff to keep trying to fill the hole that your heart desi- where, where your heart desires happiness. And it will fail you because all of these things are 
temporal. You cannot find true happiness in the temporal. The second thing, which is a bit more commendable, it's to be a kind person, to be a person of charity, actually has a shortcoming too, because without God in the picture, what that actually becomes about is you. It actually becomes a selfish endeavor. How can I become seen in society's eyes as more charitable and kind and merciful? So I think there's shortcomings to two of those. Well, I'm one of those people who believes that God actually does want us to be happy. Um, Maybe you've heard us (laughs) a a supposedly Christian attitude that says um, happiness is some kind of a sin. Um, If it feels good, don't do it. Um, because that's what Christianity is all about, what you can't do. Uh, some of us maybe were even raised being taught that way. But I have to disagree with such a dismal view of spiritual life. I believe God actually wants us to be happy. You know why? Because Jesus talked about it today in our gospel. Uh, so here's the setting. Jesus has been with crowds and crowds and thousands of people teaching and healing and so forth. And then uh, Matthew tells us that he basically needs to get away from the crowds. And so he goes up to a mountaintop and he takes his disciples with him. And he says, all right, guys, you who have made the commitment to be my followers, you come with me because I've got teaching for you. So there's people out there that are not ready for this yet. Um, They're not there. But you have committed to being my disciples and you are following me. So come up here. I'm going to have a little powwow with you and talk to you about the good life. (laughs) And the reason I believe Jesus is talking about the good life or how to be happy in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, poor in spirit, meek, um, is because you can actually translate the Greek word that is used there, makarios, as happy. And the, the, the meaning there doesn't denote so much a fleeting feeling or emotion, but rather a happy situation one finds oneself in. And in Jesus' eyes, it's a situation that is commendable by God, congratulatory by God. That's what Jesus means by happy. So think of him saying this, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are the peacemakers. It is, if you will, the good life as defined by Jesus. What does the good life look like for followers of Jesus? That is the question we are asking today. And Jesus goes down the list and he says to his disciples, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted. All of this must have sounded a little bit um, strange to the disciples Mind you, this is an honor-shame culture. So the way to find happiness is actually to create an honorable name for yourself. Okay, It's to climb to the top of the social ladder, dog-eat-dog world, doesn't matter who you've got to stomp that's in your way, you've got to get an honorable name. So this teaching about being meek and poor in spirit and merciful and pure in heart and uh, enjoying persecution was probably not all that appealing. In fact, it might have sounded a bit like foolishness. We heard the word foolishness a few times from St. Paul today. And he said the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I think there's a close connection between 
this passage and actually what Jesus is teaching. Because if you go through the Beatitudes and you look at the content of um, each Beatitude, each how-to-be-happy statement from Jesus, you see the cross. There's a connection to the cross in all of them. Think about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How poor in spirit our Lord had to become to go to a brutal death on the cross. Blessed are those who mourn. I think of Jesus shedding tears in the Garden of Gethsemane before his torture and death. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. These are all cross-like qualities. Jesus is actually saying the happy life, the good life, it looks like the cross. It looks like me, how I live. Now, I think that probably the disciples didn't get this right away. They usually um, don't get things right away. One Bible scholar calls them the disciples because it takes them um, forever to catch on to things. But they start to really catch on to things once they come into uh, and once they encounter the risen Christ, once they have experienced his crucifixion and they find the resurrected Christ. I think then, I think maybe when some of them saw him on the cross forgiving his murderers, I think maybe then the light bulb went on. And they said, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to be meek. That's what it means to be humble. That's what it means to be a peacemaker, to have that kind of self-denying love. You see the connection? Now, there's a sermon in each of the Beatitudes. Um, So I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear about ten sermons right now. But I think there's one that we could focus on today that's foundational for the rest of them, that sort of embodies all of them. And that is the first one where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I think of poor in spirit, I initially think of um, a saint like Mother Teresa who spent her life in poverty working with the poor in Calcutta or the face of a hungry child on a World Vision advertisement or something along those lines. And maybe you thought about that too and you think poor in spirit. Now, certainly Jesus' definition of Poverty of being poor in spirit, it would include material poverty like that, but I think it's a far broader definition. Because what it means to be poor in spirit actually has everything to do with a person's personal relationship and orientation to God. It has everything to do with a personal's individual relationship with God. Here's how it works. If you are poor in spirit you are utterly and solely dependent on God as the source of provision, as the source of your identity, as the source of your status as a beloved child of God. To be poor in spirit, those who are poor in spirit don't need to get ahead in the social world because they have already been, they know that they have a status as a redeemed child of God. Those who are poor in spirit don't have to stomp others because instead they're forgiving because they've been forgiven by God. You see, those who are poor in spirit are like Jesus and they imitate him. So how how do we become poor in spirit? How do we know that we're poor in spirit? How do we get there? And... I think there's one big place 
where it starts, a practical thing. Pray. Pray. Because you cannot become like someone. You cannot become to trust someone. You cannot come to fully depend on someone who you don't spend time with. So to become poor in spirit starts with spending time in the presence of the one who was poor in spirit. So, so here's, maybe, here's maybe a practical way to go about this. Maybe, maybe you, you have a prayer practice already and that's great. Maybe you don't at all and you don't know where to begin. Maybe your prayer life has kind of uh, gone by the wayside for a while because of the busyness of life. But maybe here's a practical way to start. Carve out 15 minutes. Okay, start small. Maybe, you don't, maybe it can only be five. But carve out a time in the morning and put yourself before God. Pray the daily office. It's right in the prayer book. There's a ton of prayer services in there. Reflect on the Psalms. Maybe it is just ripping your heart open before God and just pouring out what you're suffering or what you're delighting in currently but putting yourself in the presence of God. And I say do it in the morning specifically for for two big reasons. Because if you don't pray in the morning and you tell yourself that you're going to pray at the end of the day instead, don't fool yourself. Because we all know that by the end of the day you're exhausted, you're tired, your brain has turned into mush, mine has, and you are not going to pray if you haven't prayed in the morning. The second reason more importantly, is that to pray in the morning, is a, it's a, it is a sacred practice because it's, it's a way of sanctifying the whole day that is coming ahead of you. It's a way of setting, apart, setting it apart and offering it to the Lord and asking him, God, where am I going to see you at work today in this day? Where do I need to become more dependent on you? Where am I depending too much on myself? Where am I stomping on other people in my life where I should actually be serving them instead, right? It's a way of just setting that day before God and inviting him into your day and to make you aware of his presence and his activity throughout it before you yourself enter into it. Okay, that's a practical way. Spending time in the presence of the Lord is going to be the way it's going to open the door to living the good life as defined by Jesus because the more time that you spend in his presence, the more you're going to become like him. Reflecting on his word. Now, that's kind of a um, how. Now, I think there's actually a why, too. I think um, one of the whys is clearly communion with God and personal growth. But I think there's another why, because um, everything that Jesus teaches has a sort of evangelistic, gospel, missional agenda behind it. Because the gospel is to be sent out into the world, is to go out and to be proclaimed. And here's how it works, I think, with the Beatitudes. Because when you spend time in the presence of the Lord and you become, to become more like him, you become more of a peacemaker, you become poor in spirit, you become a person who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness, hungry and thirsty for God, pure in heart, you start to attract the attention of others. Now, don't take this the wrong way, the point cannot be to attract attention to yourself because in Matthew 6, one chapter later, Jesus is actually going to condemn that very thing. The point is to live these out in such a way that others see it and glorify the Father in heaven, as Jesus will say in our readings next week. 
The point is that it becomes attractional and people start to ask questions. What's different about him? What's different about her? They don't, they don't boast when they get a job promotion. They don't rub it in other people's face. They, gosh, they forgive everybody who does them wrong at the job. Why are they like that? They always have this joy about them. What? I just can't put my finger on it. What is it different about them? It starts to attract the curiosity and interest of others, and that's how it becomes missional, right? I'll tell you a story that I heard recently. Um, how this works in everyday life. There was a, um, a woman who worked at a prestigious uh, television company in New York City, and um, she went through a series of interviews and was promoted to a pretty high position in the job. And within the first couple of weeks, she made a pretty big mistake. And she had to go before her bosses, and she, had to, she was in a, in a meeting with her boss and his bosses, who were even higher-ups. And they addressed the issue that was a, just a stupid mistake that she had made. And her boss said to his bosses, it's my fault. I should have, I should have taught her better in, that, in this area where she made a mistake. I Actually, it was a training thing that I should have done. And I, I, it's completely my fault. Don't blame her. He took the hit for her. Okay, And so life went on and this woman could not figure out why he would do that because she, she did have a, a, she, it was her fault partly and she went to him and t- pulled him to the side and said why did you why did you take the blame and he said you know you're a good kid i think you're worth keeping around and you know it's no big deal don't worry about it and she said no why did you take the blame you, nobody does that in this industry everybody wants to climb to the top and if they squash you then sorry about your luck why did you actually take a hit for me and risk your own position and he said it, you know it's no big deal i just felt like it was the right thing to do and she kept pressing him and pressing him and saying no there's a reason and then finally he said okay you want to know he said i'm a christian I'm a follower of Jesus, and I believe that he took a hit for me and died for my sins on the cross, and I believe that I'm supposed to live like that too for other people. That's why I did it. And she said, where do you go to church? You see, when we live out the happy life, the good life as defined by Jesus, it will draw others to the Father. And when we live it out in our everyday lives, God will open opportunities for us to tell others how to find true happiness. Amen.